WBZ Original. I'm Larry Galco. I'm Roger Berkowitz, and this is Name Brands, the podcast about the story behind your favorite brands. Today, Roger and I are delighted to have Kerry Healy with us. Dr. Kerry Healy became president of Babson College in July 2013, following three decades of service in academia, government, and humanitarian work, both in the United States and internationally. Kerry is the 13th president of Babson College and the first woman to hold that position. At a time of great disruption of higher education, Kerry has strengthened and expanded Babson's programs increased access and affordability for students, and elevated the college's profile globally. She led Babson to the 25th consecutive number one ranking in entrepreneurship while adding recognition such as number one school for international students and number one private business school for return on investment. Carrie has presided over many, many Babson milestones. The college has expanded its presence in Boston, Dubai, and recently Miami, has welcomed the most diverse and well-qualified students in Babson's history, provides free online entrepreneurship courses to more than 100,000 students in 200 countries, created Babson Connect Worldwide, which is the college's annual entrepreneurship summit, and has generated record-breaking fundraising. And that's only for starters. Under her leadership, Babson is now preparing to commemorate its centennial celebration, and in her free time today, Roger and I are delighted to have you carry with us on Name Brands. Well, thank you, Larry. That's so nice. So can I have to ask you, 25 years running strong, number one brand entrepreneurship studies in the country. What carry do you feel is the secret sauce that enables Babson to sustain this phenomenal recognition? Okay, so that noise you hear in the background is me knocking on wood. Right? <laughs> so I think even answering this question is, is a terrible danger to, to us all. But um, the truth is that 30 years ago, Babson decided to do something really groundbreaking. And what they did is they decided that being an entrepreneur was not something you were simply born with. And, I, and I'm sitting here looking at Roger Berkowitz, so I'm, I quail to even say these words, but that, that entrepreneurs okay. <laughs> can be made. Now, obviously, Roger, you're a great example of, of an entrepreneur who was born, but but not everyone can be you. Well, no, you know, it's it's kind, you know, it's it's interesting because. I look at MBAs and and I think, geez, I would have been thrown out of business school if I was trying to get an MBA. It just it. So there's the question I have, and and this is I think the problem, and and I think what you're getting at, Larry, is the secret sauce. I think the problem with most business schools is that they manufacture MBAs, and if you look at the curriculum, it's finance. It's 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 like you're sort of developing. Most people develop number crunches, and Babson has gone out of the way. Say, wait a minute, business. Is, is about growth, entrepreneurialism. So I, you guys so that's hit right. it. That's exactly right. So, so literally 30 years ago, our our president Sorensen at that time and some really extraordinary professors said, you know what? We actually think we can teach people to do this thing that that other people have just considered innate and limited to this very you know small group of of very fortunate people. And they began developing entrepreneurship as an academic curriculum, which was considered completely out there. Mm-hmm. Nobody taught entrepreneurship as a course. They thought it was not a legitimate academic topic. And so Babson actually pioneered the idea that, no, this is a serious academic topic. You can study people like Roger and other you know, successful entrepreneurs and learn from them. And also you can help people who are naturally entrepreneurial but lack certain skills, like accounting, like management, whatever it is that, that would be holding them back, mm-hmm. and, and make them a whole entrepreneur. So they can move forward and be more effective. And so over the course of the years, we now have an entire division uh, with 160 courses on entrepreneurship. Uh, We 
always try to push the limits uh, in terms of what's new in the field. Uh, we just reopened, for example, a center on family entrepreneurship. One thing that people don't often think about is that 80% of all the businesses in the world are family-owned businesses. Absolutely. And yet, you know, it's just assumed that, hey, the first generation makes all the money, the second generation maybe, you know, spends <laughs> some of it, and then the third, and the third generation, generation loses, loses it all. Right. Right. Yeah, right, right, and, right, then, right. and then they start right. over, right? So, but it doesn't have to be that way. There are actually very successful, very creative, regenerative businesses around the world that are five, six, and more generations. Yeah, so, so that's interesting because in the United States, it is very rare to see a family business go beyond three generations. I've met people in Asia. I met one fellow in Asia, and this blows my mind, but it was not necessarily that atypical. He was 17th generation wow. family business ladies undergarments this was this was <laughs> this was in in Japan but so Hopefully so what, undergarments so have what evolved is over it, time. what is it culturally exactly that, that that yeah. overseas that they get that we haven't quite put together. And what's fascinating to me, and because we have alumni from around the world, we have alumni in 114 countries around the world. And on campus, we have students from 83 different countries right now. Wow. So, so wow. huge diversity. But if you look at the family uh, businesses from Latin America or the Middle East or Asia they're in or Europe, they're entirely different. The way they manage, the way they do things, and so no one has really ever made a deep study of getting all of those families together and talking about what they can learn from each other, how they can even integrate at this point. In most cases, these families grew up during uh, doing business during a time when there wasn't global commerce in the way that we see it today. So um, I think there are a lot of interesting opportunities for Babson in our next century. As you mentioned, we're about to have our centennials. So we ha- we're looking a lot to what is the next century of Babson going to be be about. And part of it is going to be helping those families find an entrepreneur in every generation so that the business doesn't have to go through these cycles of boom and bust. So it seems that you, so you're, you're certainly headquartered in Wellesley, Massachusetts, but you have branches all over the world. And I'm, I'm noticing not every business, not every school, but a number of schools are now going international. And it seems to be a unique business model, but that model seems to be much more sustainable than a lot of the colleges and universities in the United States. Well, first of all, one of the reasons why we have to do this is that business is global. Mm-hmm. And if we want to have global reach, and our mission is to be the global leader in entrepreneurship educator uh, education and to help create great social and economic value everywhere. So the everywhere part becomes really difficult if you're just staying in right. Wellesley, Massachusetts. Right, right. And so what we're looking to do uh, by establishing our new hubs in Miami and Dubai which are just both opening this year, uh, is to say, okay, in Miami, we that is a that is itself a hub for business families mm-hmm. from throughout mm-hmm. Latin America, uh, for entrepreneurs. Would you believe that Miami now has more entrepreneurs per capita than any other city in the U.S.? Really? Wow. So wow. Miami is just full of all of this creative activity right now. And so to have our students be there, it's it's just as exciting as being in San Francisco or somewhere else. And 
Dubai offers the same sort of environment. It, Dubai is an invented place. Mm-hmm. It is. Mm-hmm. There was nothing there 60 years ago. It was desert, and now it is the financial hub for the Middle East. It is a place where everyone from Africa banks, people from South Asia bank there and do their business. So again, it's a, it's this regional hub, and so we're trying to have presences and places where Babson's name and reputation and training can radiate out across different continents. Now, Carrie, I think one thing is important to talk about. You mentioned several times that Babson is the educator and the thought leader, quote unquote, for entrepreneurship of all kinds. And I think generally, when we hear entrepreneurship, we think of corporate America, startup ventures, early stage, whatever. Can you share with us when you say entrepreneurship of all kinds, what is that all encompassing? Yes, thank you, because this is one of our little catchphrases, and we always forget that other people don't know exactly what we're talking about when we say entrepreneurship of all kinds. At Babson, we believe that you can be an entrepreneur uh, certainly by starting a business. That's the classic way of being an entrepreneur. But you could also be innovative within a large company. You could be innovative within your family business. You could be innovative uh, at a nonprofit or uh, mm-hmm. in a social mm-hmm. impact uh, company sure. of some sort. So we don't want people to feel limited by this this preconceived notion of what it is mm-hmm. to be an entrepreneur. It's sort of the next step beyond hey anybody could be an entrepreneur with the proper training. It's also, you could use that same way of thinking and acting to propel your career and your life in almost any sphere. We, we try to teach people to think and act differently and to be willing to accept risks and not view them as failure mm-hmm. if things don't mm-hmm. turn out properly, but think of it as a learning experience. You've, you, I think Nelson Mandela says, I never fail, I only ever learn. And yeah. this is a very good approach to life because if you do take that learning and then pivot and do something else, you can succeed. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Yeah. And, yeah. and um, take us back in time. Roger Babson. I like the name Roger. My wife pointed out that how come every guy, every bad guy in a movie is named Roger? I, I don't, I don't know. Roger, what's the question? How many parents today <laughs> name their children Roger? Not very many, I can assure you. Well, now there's going to be an entire generation of children named Roger because you just said that. Yeah. So every, every parent, every parent who has ever named their child thought with, with the my G, child will be the only one right named right. this it's name. Not here, right. Right. Yes. Okay. <laughs> So, so Roger Babson, how did he start this and what, what was his impetus? For what a fascinating person he is. So we've actually been able to dig back and learn a little bit more about Roger Babson and honor him as the centennial is coming up. He was an eccentric and a visionary. He was the first person who started mapping the economy uh, on charts and noticed that the economy goes up and the economy goes down. And so he actually was the first person uh, and the loudest voiced person to predict the Great Depression. And he had, uh, back in the day, he had columns in, syndicated columns in newspapers around the country talking about his financial ideas and his investment suggestions. But at some point, he he pushed the panic button and said, the economy is is overheated and it's going to crash. What goes up must come down. And those who took his word and followed him were in much better shape financially than were the rest. 
past. And so he actually ended up running for president uh, against Roosevelt on a temperance oh, really? ticket. Can you believe it? He wanted to bring back you know, the, the ban on alcohol and, and during the Great Depression. And believe it or not, that did not go over so well. So wow. he uh, failed miserably. And But he also founded Babson College in, in 1919. And the idea was to educate the sons, and I say sons because at that time it was that. It was an all-male college uh, of business people so that they could, again, enter the family business and be successful. And he created uh, an entire atmosphere where they had secretaries, they had to punch in uh, when they arrived, just like they're going to work. They had to wear ties, they had desks, they they dictated. It was a true business. A true business. Yeah. So he tried to simu- simulate a business environment. Uh, he also believed in, in very harsh conditions. Even in the winter, he would make them have the windows open so that they would stay alert and so that they wouldn't be too comfortable. And everyone, so there are all these very amusing pictures of people with these giant coats, these giant wool capes on, (laughs) and the poor secretaries trying to type with their fingers frozen. But um, so, so Roger Babson was a character. But the thing that I love best about his legacy is he was from Gloucester, and he was the the son of a merchant up in Gloucester. He talked his way into MIT at some point because he wanted to learn about gravity. And he thought that gravity was the great enemy of mankind. He thought that everything Uh bad happened because of gravity. In fact, he thought that the Great Depression... The, the, you know, he thought it happened because <laughs> the market had gotten too high and gravity somehow pulled wow. it down. Yeah. And his That's sister, the ultimate conspiracy theory. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and his poor sister had uh, drowned having fallen through uh, the ice at some point on a, on, a, on a river or a lake in Gloucester. And so he had felt that she had been dragged down by the weight of her coat and her shoes and that, and that, wow. that, that gravity was the source of her death. And so he wanted to study it and and defeat it. And so he also funded anti-gravity uh, foundations. And there's still a number of them at New England colleges uh, around the, uh, the really? region. Uh, and they, they're more, uh, they don't take themselves very seriously at this point. But, you know, it, but it was at a moment when the Wright brothers were, you know, creating flight and so forth. So the idea that you could beat gravity yeah. wasn't that outlandish. I mean, if you were t- thinking about flight for the first time, why not anti-gravity? So, um, so he was fascinated with Newton. He has a huge selection of Newton's papers. You know, one of the largest collections in the world outside of Cambridge University we still have. Um, and so we're, we're excited about finding ways to celebrate his legacy and in, in all of its uh, oddness, but splendor and, and vision. Carrie, coming from the most recently from your political world as lieutenant governor coming to Babson. What do you feel were the most striking differences or transformational challenges you had going from the political world into being president of a major academia organization? So I had imagined when I came into this position as a college president, and this is true of uh, higher ed generally, that the skills that I'd learned in politics, whether it was dealing with different constituencies or communicating my ideas and my vision or raising money, would all translate pretty neatly 
into mm-hmm. the job. And the truth is, there is actually no more complicated job, I believe, you know, than being a college president <laughs> mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you have to do everything from being able to go to the dining hall and have lunch with the students right. uh, to deciding where the future of higher education is to pleasing about seven or eight different constituencies. See, but you did need a little political time. acumen, right? Perhaps, right. but you know, you can't take your <laughs> Always lobbying, eye. Right? Yeah, you, you, yeah, you can't take your eye off the students yeah. or the faculty or your staff or your trustees or your alumni, uh, and then you have your community that you live in, and that's very complicated. And then you have to think about the you know broader uh, world hmm. impacting higher education and where you need to go financially. And of course, financially, educa- higher education is a is a quagmire. So it's yeah. it's a long list of skills you actually need to be able to make a college work. So you know, please be gracious yeah, to people who take I these know, positions because no, they're not yeah, easy. No, you know, no. Carrie, when you mentioned that, it, Roger, it brings back a conversation we had with Cindy Fenwick, who is CEO of Boston Children's Hospital. And besides running the hospital and the academians and the doctors and the patients, whatever, she's a whole different world with, you know, reimbursement and, you know, everything else under the sun. So it's almost very similar yeah, so that's to another Babson. job. I shouldn't say yes. that, that college president is the hardest. Maybe hospital president is the, is the, <laughs> the hospital CEO is the hardest. Uh, these days, it could be the restaurant business. But go ahead. <laughs> well, well, why? Is there, is there a lack of a supply with oysters? <laughs> no. You know, that's one, you know, one of the things that you mentioned is, is, is the model. And models have to change. They have to evolve over time. And, and the education model, the higher education model with the spiraling tuition costs – at a certain point, do you worry? And this is, you know, overall, not not Babson particularly, because I think Babson has done a particularly good job at figuring out a new model. But higher education in general, do you hit a point of diminishing return where the costs far exceed the value that people are going to get, and then does that model potentially go away? That's right. It. it- it does. And so what Larry said in the beginning about the new number one ranking for um, private business schools in terms of return on investment, mm-hmm. that's – it sounds uh, per- perhaps a little bit hard to understand, but the idea is how much are you paying in for that education exactly. and what do you expect to get back over the course of your lifetime? So we – we are so grateful for that number one ranking because I can look the parents who just dropped their, mm-hmm. you know, their their sons and daughters off to Babson in the eye and say, yes, it's all in you know, with tuition and room and board and expenses. It's going to be around sixty thousand dollars for you to send your child to to Babson, assuming you don't get financial aid. Um, but when that child graduates, I can tell you with 99% certainty that they will have a job within six months and that that job will pay over $56,000 a year. And that in 10 years, they will actually be making more money than you know their entire peer group who went to other colleges. And so, and so I, can, I can look them in the eye and say, I'm sorry it costs so much, but I can tell you that it will be a good return on investment. So take yourself outside of Babson. What about the parent that drops their child off at a liberal arts school? Exactly. This is hard. This is harder. That's where what you were saying about the model comes into play. So the question that people are going to begin to ask themselves at some point is, 
am I investing too much into this education for the likely return? And we are going to have to reorganize ourselves. And I, and I think that it doesn't involve abandoning the liberal arts or the humanities. I'm a huge fan of the liberal arts and the humanities. In fact, I brought the Commonwealth Shakespeare Company to be in residence at Babson College. I do believe we are the only business school with a, co- with a Shakespeare Company in residence. Mm-hmm. And, and the mm-hmm. idea there is simply that the arts are the most entrepreneurial pursuit you can possibly imagine. Mm-hmm. Artists have to support themselves. They have to figure out how their mm. creativity intersects with their livelihood. And so, and also the arts are big business, whether it's uh, theater or whether it is music or movies or wh- how, what have you. Um, there are lots of entrepreneurial opportunities in the arts. So I wouldn't say to liberal arts institutions that they should abandon what they're teaching, far from it. But I would also say that they need to begin to integrate some practical expertise that they've been very resistant too. I can tell you that many liberal arts colleges would still feel very uncomfortable with teaching entrepreneurship or even something like accounting or mm-hmm. you know, management skills. They, they would consider that to be not appropriate for a liberal arts education. I think they're going to have to start bending and say, yes, we want you to be a whole person when you graduate. We want you to be able to think, but we also want you to be able to succeed in the world. You know, it's interesting you say that. Um, Brandeis University has been known as a very good liberal arts college. Uh, about seven or eight years ago, uh, there was some demand, you know, from the incoming students to have a business major. And they introduced a business major reluctantly. Is the number one major on campus undergraduate now? So I th- I think people are starting to really vote with with their feet in terms of what it is that they want. As a, as from what you see today, from your vantage point, ten years from now, and I know ten years is sort of a, a long way off, but given the millennials and perhaps the the habits of millennials and all the uh, disruptive technology coming down the road, what does college education look like 10 years down the road? I think there's a lot more online, but I don't think that face-to-face ever goes away. I think that the way most people learn best is when they have some work that they're doing online, especially younger people because they're very accustomed to working and spending time on their computers. But then you have the ability to work in groups And you have the ability to interact with a professor who knows you and cares about you. That's really the recipe for success. So there's not much difference between an entirely face-to-face class and a well-executed blended learning class, meaning partially online and and partially face-to-face. In fact, we find that our students who do our blended learning MBA, which is actually ranked top 10 in the world, for, for MBAs, on, online MBAs, um, I find that they are more bonded to their classmates and their oh. professors oh, than the people who are there full time. Uh, and I think that they value those relationships more and they invest more in creating those relationships. So it's it's an interesting question, but I don't think we're going to see everything online. Most people can't learn that way. They, they aren't fully self-motivated. They actually need someone who cares about them. And we know from recent Gallup studies that the things that really make education effective for the rest of your life is that relationship with an important professor 
you know, having somebody who cares about you and knows what you want to do with your life and is helping you toward that. And then hands-on learning experiences that connect with the real world. So whether it's a class that takes you out to do management consulting type work or allows you to do an internship or some kind of work like they do at Northeastern, I think that those kinds of programs that either engage in co-ops or classes that are very experientially based, those are the ones that really make education effective. You know, so Carrie, that's where it's got to go. It's interesting. Full disclosure, I'm a Babson MBA. I was there when um, when uh, Dr. Sorensen was there. Oh, but okay. I remember when he said something and it caused a little spike in my mind. There was a class called Creative Problem Solving with Dr. Ed McGee. And that course was such a, a turning point in me about how you creatively think of life, projects, initiation, uh, initiatives, programs. He got you to think beyond the walls of how you traditionally thought. When I think back years later, I always think of Ed McGee as being the kind of that pivotal point guy that kind of, you know, enabled me to just look at things totally different. But Carrie, I want to ask you a question. It's like we're all parents here and we all have children and we all love them dearly, right? And we love them all for different reasons. You've achieved so many milestones and you've launched and you've created and you've invented so many things in Babson so far during your six years. Is there one or two uh, initiatives or programs that you've created that are more near and dear to your heart, more of your favorites or proudest accomplishments than others? Because, but you know, you've done so many. Oh, so who are my favorite children? That's what you're asking. Uh, yes. yes, okay. Yes. Um, That's okay. hard to answer. You, right. you like them at different times for different reasons. <laughs> well, who do you like the most today? Yes. You know, yeah. honestly, I do have a favorite child, so yeah. I will talk about that a little bit. When I first came to Babson, uh, we saw that we had fantastic financial aid for our uh, domestic students. And right now we meet 100% of domest- uh, a demonstrated need for our uh, domestic students. We put... million of our own money every year right off the top of the budget into scholarships for our students. So I felt very good about what we were doing for our domestic students, but I looked at our international students and we were doing nothing at all. And so it created this odd division between the great diversity that I was seeing among our, our domestic student population and then, a, you know, a pretty commonly, you know, monolithic, wealthy uh, group of folks from overseas. And I thought that really wasn't fair because if our students are there to learn about the world, they needed to know that the world is mm-hmm. even more diverse than America. And so I started bringing in students that I called global scholars and just small groups, 10 per class out of a class of more than 500. But um, but now we have more than 40 of those scholars on campus that come from all over the world. We had 900 applications for 10 spots all in the need-based. first year. Wow. All need-based. And need-based and merit-based. So we would look at who are the people around the world who we think are going to change their countries? Mm-hmm. Whether they're going to be amazing business entrepreneurs or social the, the entrepreneurs. The ultimate ROI, right? Yes, the ultimate ROI. Yeah. I want to know that whoever is going to be the most disruptive but positive force in these various countries around the world, I want them to be connected with Babson and they want. I want them to have our resources behind cool. them. That's great. And so we've been bringing in these students and they are just blowing our minds. They are incredible. We had our first uh, group uh, graduate last year. One of the young men just came back and had uh, dinner with me and and some of his friends and colleagues at, at Babson. He's gone back to Liberia where he had, as a high school student, 
uh, unionize the students to demand textbooks. And wow. so that's what got our attention. That's why we, yeah, we brought yeah. him and we figured like, okay, if he's already unionizing his fellow students <laughs> at, at you know, age 18, uh-huh. what's he going to be uh-huh. doing later? So, uh-huh. so the answer is he now has started uh, incubators to uh, not only launch uh, entrepreneurs in Liberia, but also to train students to apply for scholarships in the U.S. so that they can create their infrastructure and, and their bandwidth for developing the country. And the idea is that these Students will get the the uh, the training, go to the U.S. to study, and then come back to uh, to to benefit the country. And so he's just one of many examples, but he's doing exactly what we would hope to do. And we have people coming back to you know places um, throughout Africa, throughout Latin America, and Asia. Um, it's it's going to be extraordinary to see what these global scholars do. So, so you have such an international presence to stage. I'm just curious, Carrie. What are some of your challenges on building and growing this brand of Babson College domestically versus internationally? It is very interesting. In some ways, it's easier to do it internationally because, uh, first of all, our focus on family business really resonates mm-hmm. outside the yep. country very deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, we have had a great reputation with generations of leaders outside the right. country. You were talking about Japan earlier, Roger. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you look at Japan, uh, five of the top uh, CEOs and industrialists in, in Japan went to Babson College, and oh. together they uh, employ over 800,000 people. My God. So, you know, wow. one of them was Akio Toyota. So, you know, and, and Daisuke Toyota also, you know, went to Babson. Oh, really? So, yeah, so, really? so we, um, and Maratas, and all, all, we have a wonderful group of people there, but you can point to many countries, and, and many of the top employers are, around the world went to, went to Babson. So, so, in some ways, it's easier for us outside, mm. and we're still struggling to get people to recognize uh, what a resource we are here because we're, we're in this pool of wonderful colleges. Right. You know, here in Massachusetts and in Boston, so it's hard to stand out. So you mentioned Toyota, and I, and, and I, I, this is fascinating because Toyota has really embraced lean as a as a concept, and we've been working on that for the last four years. And 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 we we certainly see the you know the opportunities and the efficiencies uh, and the value that it brings to the to your consumer as well. I was at a uh, a conference and I ran into someone from Babson who was a lean scholar. So it it appears that Babson is embracing it as a um, as a topic of study. But then I'm curious. I'd like to hear a little bit about that. And then also, do you introspectively look at lean as a way of sort of doing? business as a university. I'm curious. Oh, well, that's interesting. That's a very interesting thought. Um, I certainly do try to learn from people on the ground, and I absolutely ask the people who work at Babson, at least once a year, I go around and talk to every employee and try to get, you know, call their best uh, suggestions for how to do things. But the point that that actually raises for me is that we try to learn from our graduates, Right? We try to take great advantage. Not only do we teach our, our students, but then once they graduate and go out and do amazing things, we try to go and learn from them and then teach our students what our, what our graduates know, including Lean. So I think that's a, that's a wonderful example of, of this sort of symbiotic relationship mm-hmm. of us continuing to learn from our best entrepreneurs. So if we go now, let's say, 
upscale from undergrad to graduate now to what's called executive education. What's happening with Babson Executive Ed? I've always wondered, because I did give some speeches there when a company would come in, carry, and they spend the whole week there. And then I've seen programs where individuals would come and partake in certain programs. So is it more the trending towards a corporate play or a consumer play? And, and what's happening in that space competitively with other universities and colleges you know, for this executive yeah, ed? Let me just throw in one sure. other question, point to that. At what stage does is a, is a person, maybe it varies, a uh, the best learner. I mean, when do they when do they absorb the most? Because I will tell you from my experience, I was an okay, you know, uh, undergrad. I kind of th- I, I kind of thought that. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> but but where I really learned was in ex- executive ed courses. Yeah. Because I don't, yeah. maybe I was ready for it. Maybe I was more mature. I don't know. And and everybody is going to be like that in the future, right? So one of the disadvantages of the future is that our jobs are going to change every couple years or our skills are going to become obsolete every couple years. But it it does mean that if you didn't get it the first time, you can continue (laughs) to try and try again. Yeah, there's absolutely. We all are going to have to be lifelong learners. I don't think Roger and I today could get into Babson with what she's done. I don't think we get into the – it's a good thing I got into the late eighties. In the I'd, late like, 70s. I'd like to think you could. Although, yeah, we had some. Characters. I don't know the way you say teachers are going. Everything would be, else would be special. Uh, right. you know, if we it, got you know, going before. back to my high school days, I was editor of my yearbook. I was on the crew team, and I thought that was really cool for extracurricular activities versus the kids today. Well, I, I I like to think the cream always rises to the top. So you'll see. But um, but so so talking about exec ed, it's really interesting because that that area is transforming more than any other simply because of the rapiding rapidly changing demands. And in the workplace. And so in the past, it's been you go to a retreat, you come to the come to the college, and, and you spend a couple days learning with wonderful professors, and they teach you a new skill or a new way of thinking. Now, things are moving so rapidly, often employers want you to bring shorter courses out to them. And so we find ourselves actually bringing our executive ed more into the workplace in some cases. Um, and People are more interested sometimes now in having those short executive ed courses that nonetheless could be stacked. They call them stackable courses uh, to create an MBA over time. So let's say every year an employee, uh, an employer brings in uh, Babson or, or another college uh, to do some short courses that give you X number of credits, and they do it every year for four years, and then, oh, you've got an MBA. So um, I think that sort of experience is more interesting to people now than in the past. Certainly online uh, executive education is is more of interest, especially if you're trying to train, you know, tens of thousands of people. There's no other way to do it. And I think that employers are really getting interested in having high quality training for all of their employers or employees, not just, you know, the, the management mm-hmm. th- that used to be brought in for these very special trainings. So it's really changing. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you exactly where it's going uh, for other colleges, but I can tell you that for Babson, for our mission, we've really turned and focused on educating educators of entrepreneurship. So we're trying to amplify our impact in terms of uh 
teaching our methodology of, of entrepreneurship uh, to as many people as we can around the world and around the country. So we have something called the Symposium for Entrepreneurship Educators, and uh, we we bring in uh, dozens, if not you know uh, more than a hundred educators from around the world and around the country each year, and we tell teach them how to teach like we teach. So, it's, so it's like training the trainer. Training the trainer. Yeah, and, that's and, awesome. And I and I think that that's really the the way forward for us because our mission is. Is, is to give our methodology away. We want everyone to be an entrepreneur. We think the world would be a better place if everybody had those skills. So we need to give it away. That That is actually, in thinking about it, a better business model uh, because it doesn't have the, the costly infrastructure needs and it allows you to spread the word faster and quicker and more efficiently. Yeah, I mean, we're a small college. We only have 3,000 students total, graduate mm-hmm. and undergraduate. So there's no way we can have global impact unless we have people who are uh, affiliated with us around mm-hmm. the world doing this on their own. We talked before about skyrocketing tuition costs. And I read last week, Carrie, I want to get your take that um, I'm sure we've all seen it and read about it, that NYU has created a program a few weeks ago where they came in and during the commencement, they called a white coat ceremony where all the first year students at medical school are getting their white coats. And right then and there, the dean said, we're gonna be paying your full ride scholarship tuition for the entire time you're there. At that time, they sent an email to all the students saying, we're taking care of all 100% of your tuition costs. And they created a separate endowment. They've reached so far $450 million out of $600 million. But they say in perpetuity, they're never going to charge another medical school student for tuition. I just want to get your take on that. And whether you think this is sustainable or is, well, it, is it the cure-all? If they can, n- if they the can raise the endowment, if they can raise the endowment to do it, then that's the perfect it, answer. It is. Right? Yeah, it is. Because so you will get the is, best students. Yes, exactly. And, and, and you know, like how does Harvard or Stanford or Yale or any of these wonderful institutions that have these giant endowments, how do they manage to offer full financial aid and full scholarships to anyone who has need to go there? Um, they do it because they have endowments that are worth billions of dollars. Right. And so I think that NYU was very uh, smart in terms of but – but they did take a risk by announcing that they were going to give the scholarships before they had the endowment in place. Yes. So so they counted on that bold move they to inspire the money. The, 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 the right. money there must have been a, a Babson grad that was yeah. in so, so, I think, so I think that was brilliant, and and I I congratulate them on that. Um, I think that we need as a society to find a different model for paying for the education for our doctors. If we genuinely in, aspire to having affordable health care, and if we aspire to covering everyone in the country with, with health care insurance, we're going to need thousands and thousands, tens of thousands more doctors than we have today. And so that was the one piece about health care reform that we never really got to. And I wasn't sure why people didn't raise the issue of, yes, you know, you can bring all of these uh, new people onto the health care insurance roles, but who's going to serve them? You know, in fact, you end up making the um, accessibility to health care much lower the more people exactly. you bring to the table. If you don't make more doctors and 
nurse practitioners and change the way we offer healthcare. So there's there's going to be a giant disruption in in how we offer healthcare, and I think a good one because of the technological advances that are happening right now. But I also think we need we're going to need more doctors no matter what, and we always want our brightest and and best students to aspire to being physicians. So I I absolutely commend them for uh, for it's going also in this direction. Very similar to what you're doing with this um, program overseas that you call the Global Scholars Program, even though it's a small context, you're having need-based, merit-based students across the world come to Babson, and you said there's a small number now, but that could grow to be hundreds and hundreds later on, and that could be mirroring you know, what you, your philosophy well, is. Well, that's right. And, and one of the things I'm trying to do in my last year as president of Babson is to endow that program at $50 million. So uh, I believe that the Global Scholars Program is something that should be continued indefinitely, but I can tell you that the only way that you can have a permanent impact on an institution is to endow it. That makes it permanent. So I can start a program, I can show people how how valuable it is, but in hard times, it could be on the chopping block if it's not endowed. And so I'm out talking to people every day now saying, I need to raise $50 million for this program, or at some point it could go away. You probably come in contact with more entrepreneurs uh, than 99.9% of the population. What kind of changes do you see just in in society you know we you know we talk about maybe the automobile industry changing radically overnight we saw what smartphones have, have done what kinds of things do you see disrupting you know the way we live today over the next i'll say 5 to 10 years that we may not be cognizant of right now what I was talking about before in terms of coming disruptions in healthcare, I, I think that all of our wearables, um, all of the tests that are becoming available, I think that there's a lot of research being done around um, our, our microbiome, you know, in our stomachs, and, and certainly uh, learning more and more about DNA every day, that, that that's really going to stand um, right beside what we've considered to be traditional medicine. I think as we learn more, you know, about our gut biome and, and how how much is is actually controlled genetically and how this all relates, uh, I think we're just going to be in a whole new world. And uh, and a lot of what we have always considered uh, things that had to be done at a hospital will probably be able to be done remotely, uh, be monitored with small unobtrusive wearables or small little tests that can be sent to you. I'm actually very optimistic that the level of healthcare um, and the quality of healthcare that can be delivered on a, on a broad scale is going to be much higher than it has been in the past uh, and much less expensive given the technologies that are being developed. So I'm, I'm excited about that. I'm very optimistic about the future of healthcare. I don't think it's going to look anything like the system we have today. I think the whole thing is just going to have to be scrapped. But um, but I believe that there, <clears throat> excuse me, I believe that there are entrepreneurs out there who are thinking in very different ways about healthcare delivery and and what healthcare is. Mm-hmm. Okay, we have something called the lightning round. Oh, and uh-huh. the, in the uh-huh. lightning round, uh, we ask you know sort of these sometimes irreverent questions uh, for quick answers. Okay, okay? and, and right. no, but, no, but unlike these TV shows, there are no gifts. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, let me start off. I want you to fill in the blank. 
Mitt Romney should be president because? <laughs> His integrity. Okay. Very good. Larry? Roger mentioned that you have met probably 99% of the entrepreneurs out there. If you had the opportunity to have dinner with one iconic entrepreneur, someone who you've never met yet, who would that be? Has to be Elon Musk. So controversial right now, so uh -huh. interesting. Uh-huh. Awesome. All right. So where are their better perks? As lieutenant governor or president <laughs> of a university? And what are they? Ah, uh, okay. Um, I think I'd have to say uh, president of a university because you don't have the Herald writing about you every day. <laughs> and it's a perk not to have the Herald writing about you every day. <laughs> okay. All right, Carrie, we all know that America runs on Duncan. What does Carrie run on? Oh, Krispy Kreme and regular Coca-Cola. Oh, very good. Very, it is very hard to good. get Krispy Kreme here, so it's very depressing. Most unusual major offered at, at uh, Babson? Well, it has to be entrepreneurship because there aren't many other colleges that have that all as right, a major right, let, me, let, let, me, let me drill down. Most unusual course. Mm, okay. We have a wonderful course that takes students for an entire semester with Babson students, I'm sorry, with Babson professors to Russia, India, and China. And they spend a month in each of those areas meeting the business people and entrepreneurs and studying about the culture. And it's called the BRIC program, and it's fantastic. That's the most unusual course. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. What one piece of advice would you give your 25-year-old self? Oh, I have a 26-year-old, so I was thinking what I say to him, but I went to myself. That's harder. Um, perhaps to speak up more yeah. and to feel a little bit more confident. Uh, I was very deferential and very um, concerned about uh, just being uh, observant and, and deferential to authority at that point. And I think that I probably had more to say than, than I offered, and I wish I had had the, um, the self-confidence and the courage to speak up more often. Hypothetically, your son or daughter got into, uh, and perhaps they did, uh, Harvard Business School and Babson Business School. <laughs> Where do you counsel them to go? <laughs> So I would say commercial that depends. Break. <laughs> commercial break. Um, I, I would say that depends on on who they are, and and what they want to do with their life. If they genuinely want to work at uh, a corporation uh, or a big bank and never do anything particularly different than simply go locked up, you know, within those organizations, then I would say uh, honestly, you could go to many other uh, mm -hmm. business schools. But if you want to create something, if you want to be involved with your family business, if you want to network with other entrepreneurs from around the world, then I would say that, that Babson Business School is a great option for you. Fair answer. You know, Roger, this next question is going to be really great press for you and I if she answers it a certain way. Okay? <laughs> you've been lieutenant governor. You've been president of Babson College. Do we foresee Kerry Healy candidate for presidency? Ah, great question. Uh, what I am contemplating is trying to bring together all of the individuals who are currently working in the centrist space, the bipartisan space, the nonpartisan space. There are a lot of people out there who are working to revive democracy, uh, work against money in government and gerrymandering, and they don't get to see each other. 
And But I get to see them. I meet them individually, and they're all extraordinary Americans who are trying to figure out how do we depolarize political debate in America. And so on September 24th at the Concordia Summit in New York, I'm going to be bringing together uh, as many of these groups as I possibly can to sit around the table across from each other and let them know what each other are doing. And some of them are very different. Some of them are absolutely always going to be Republican groups. Some of them are absolutely going to be Democratic groups. Some are going to start a third party, but they all care about America and they're all trying to bring us back from the extremes. Awesome. Well, well you'd make a great president regardless of what you That's do. That's right. I'd vote for him. <laughs> <laughs> and this next question is for Larry. Oh. All right. And this is to, 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 I want to test you, Larry. What is the Babson School mascot? Beaver. What's that? Babson Beaver. Okay. All right. Is that is that true? All right, Carrie. Busy Beaver. Yes. All right. Okay. <laughs> and what's the school newspaper? The Babson Bulletin. Uh, <laughs> I believe that was contemporaneously correct. <laughs> yes. I do know it's the Babson Magazine. And I know she just came back from Spain as well. I know all about her. <laughs> you know, Carrie, uh, uh, it is it is a real honor for us because we've never had a president, a lieutenant governor, and a doctor embodied in one person <gasps> joining us in name and brands. And possibly a presidential uh, candidate. Yes, and, and, and possibly that. So because we are, every person in America could be a president. Candidate. Yes. We we are indeed honored. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Remember to subscribe to Name Brands on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. We're at Name Brands Pod on Twitter or on Facebook at Name Brands Podcast. That's it for us. We'll be back to talk to you again next Wednesday. (laughs) 